Welcome to the AI Events Podcast, your front row seat to exciting scholarly debates on pressing national issues. With new episodes every week, never miss out on the conversation and stay up to date on topics important to you. To hear more, check out our other channels related to education, domestic policy, and international issues. Welcome. Welcome to the American Enterprise Institute. I'm Yuval Levin. I'm Director of Social, Cultural, and Constitutional Studies here at AI. And it's my great pleasure tonight to welcome you to a discussion of an important new book by my good friend and colleague, Michael Strain. Michael is the Director of Economic Studies here at AI. He's a widely published scholar in labor economics and public finance and many other areas. And his new book is an exceptionally clear and broad overview of the state of American economic life, uh, the actual conditions we face, the trends over recent decades, how those relate to some of the dark stories that we hear uh, in our politics about the conditions Americans have experienced and also what our prospects are. He finds, I think it's fair to say, that things are much better than the mood of our politics and the critics of the market economy would sometimes suggest, but that we do face risks and that maybe that mood and those critics are among the most important of those risks. Um, it's a controversial thesis. I have to say, as a conservative, I am resistant to being cheered up and told everything is fine. Um, but it is a very powerfully argued thesis, and uh, as you'll see in here tonight, uh, a very thoroughly supported thesis in the book. Joining us to respond to Mike's argument uh, is Richard Reeves, one of the smartest social analysts and policy, th policy thinkers in Washington. Richard is the Whitehead Chair and a Senior Fellow in Economic Studies at the Brookings Institution. He's director of the Brookings Initiative on the Future of the Middle Class, the author of many important articles and a number of important books, including most recently Dream Hoarders, How the American Middle Class is Leaving Everyone Else in the Dust, Why That is a Problem, and What to Do About It. Um, our format is going to be very simple. Mike will offer us an overview of the argument of the book. Richard will offer a response. Uh, I'll moderate a brief conversation between the two of them. So with that, let's welcome Michael Strain. Well, thank you all so much for coming. Thank you, Yuval, for that uh, very generous introduction. The uh, title of the book contains um, the argument that I'm making, which is that the American dream is not dead. And the subtitle makes the secondary argument that I'm making, which is that populism might kill it. So it's actually uh, a, an excellent cover, and there's really no reason for any of you to read anything on the inside of it. But we'll talk about that uh, uh, anyway. What do we mean by the American dream. Let's just start from the top. Uh, there are many definitions, and, and it means many different things to many different people. The freedom to choose how to live your own life, to have a good life, meaningful work, a good family, a strong community, a comfortable retirement. Uh, to own a home, home ownership is a, a big part of the American dream and the popular imagination. Um, I would argue that a key part of the dream is based on economic success. No matter what kind of specific flavor of the American dream you're most interested in, uh, no matter what your particular definition is, I think everybody's definition involves a, a large economic component, uh, loosely defined. The idea that your kids will grow up to be better off than you, the idea that you can do better yourself through hard work uh, and, uh, and, and that you can see your economic outcomes advance. Uh, and then the idea that there is a rags-to-riches component. This also is a strong economic component. The idea that, that a poor kid can grow up to become a billionaire, the poor, a poor kid can grow up to become president, that sort of thing. 
This is the uh, uh, part of the American dream I focus on in this book, the economic component, because I think it's just so central to, um, to everybody's uh, uh, shared understanding of this important uh, motivating national concept. The national conversation assumes that the American dream is dead. President Trump, with his usual nuance, has said the American dream is dead. Um, this was, of course, his theme uh, during the uh, primaries of the 2016 cycle, his theme uh, uh, after he was elected, his inaugural address uh, discussing American carnage and, and uh, uh, how terrible everything is. He's pivoted in the last few months. Um, which is good, uh, 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 but this has really been a defining uh, characteristic of his presidency. Um, Senator Rubio tells this story about uh, his family and uh, uh, about how his family uh, uh, came to America and, and, and didn't have a lot of education and, and how there's been successive advancement uh, uh, across generations. He told this uh, story back when he was running for president in 2016 as an example of the American dream being alive. In the past few years, he tells the same story with the same set of facts, except he uses it to argue that uh, that, that path is no longer possible. The American dream has disappeared. Uh, Elizabeth Warren, the rich get richer, everyone else falls behind, the game is rigged. Bernie Sanders, for many, the American dream has become a nightmare. Josh Hawley, 70% of Americans haven't seen a real wage increase in 30 years. Joe Stiglitz, the Nobel Prize winning economist uh, from the Clinton administration, says the American economy is failing its citizens. Ray Dalio, the billionaire investor, says the American dream is lost. Tucker Carlson, referring to the dark age we are living through, says the American dream is dying. My point is that this is bipartisan. This is something you hear from senior elected officials in both parties. It's something you hear from business leaders. It's something you hear from public opinion leaders, from public intellectuals. There is a consensus. My point in this book is that that consensus is misplaced. My goal is not to be Panglossian or contrarian. Americans have high expectations for their economic outcomes, high expectations for their wage growth, high expectations for the success their children will have. That's a good thing. And America does face serious economic challenges, and I, and I spend a chapter in the book discussing some that I think are the most serious. America also faces very serious social challenges. So I'm not trying to diminish or to uh, 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 sugarcoat or to ignore any of the real problems we face. Uh, instead, I'm trying to be accurate, and I'm trying to be accurate about the broad picture of the American experience, how American life is experienced by typical people, by most people, in most circumstances. I think that we are focusing so much on these pockets of real struggle that we are confusing those pockets of struggle for the common experience facing people. And I think the American people keep hearing that their experience is the same as the experience of people in places who are really suffering and really struggling. I don't want to deny that suffering. I don't want to deny that struggle. I do want to say that those are atypical situations uh, and that the common experience is that uh, uh, much, more, much more positive than, um, than the narrative suggests. So some simple assertions. Today's economy is delivering for American workers. Wages and incomes have not been stagnant for typical workers over the past three decades. Broader quality of life has improved significantly for typical households over the past several decades. Middle-income jobs have been hollowed out, but economic dynamism creates and destroys. We hear a lot about the destruction and creative destruction. We don't hear a lot about the creativity. And if you look, you see a new middle maybe starting to form where the old middle has been eroded. America is still broadly characterized by upward economic mobility. 
And I'd make a couple other assertions as well, which is that the narrative about the American dream matters and that we need to do more to advance and secure the dream for the next generation. So very briefly, because I, I, I'm going to stand up here for about 20 minutes and then I want to give Richard the opportunity to, uh, to respond and then to have some discussion. So I'm, I'm not going to be able to cover all that, but I'm going to, I'm going to do the best I can. I thought it would be uh, uh, better to have some real disagreement um, uh, than to just have me stand up here and, and, and lecture for an hour. Um, so uh, the economy is delivering for workers. Just some simple statistics. Weekly earnings for workers in the bottom 10% have grown over one-third faster than growth at the median over the last several years. The unemployment rate for workers without a high school diploma is further below its long-term average than the unemployment rate for college graduates currently. Wages for non-supervisory workers have been growing faster than overall average wages since last February. The argument that the gains from the hot economy are only accruing to people at the top, that the game is rigged against workers who are not at the very top, is just not supported by the data. Right now, currently, the recovery is reaching uh, uh, wide swaths of the American labor market, including some of the least skilled, least experienced, and most vulnerable workers. Uh, my second argument, wages have not stagnated for decades. We'll spend a little more time here. This is a graph of wages. This is a graph of the wages of uh, non-supervisory workers. These are production workers in manufacturing, construction workers in construction, and non-supervisory workers in services. These include, this group of workers includes about 80% of all workers, about four in five workers. You can think of these folks as workers, not managers. And what I've done is plot the average wage for workers in that group, uh, uh, adjusted for inflation. And I want to make some simple observations. What you see is that uh, throughout the 1960s and going into the 1970s, there was a rapid and sustained wage growth for this group of workers. Then what you see is from the mid-1970s to the mid-1990s that this group of workers uh, did not do so well. You see stagnant and declining wages. Since the early to mid-1990s, I see wages going up. I don't see wages being stagnant. Are there periods where wages aren't growing uh, during that 30-year period? Yes. But on the whole, if, you're, if your choice is to characterize this as stagnant, or as increasing, I think it's quite clear that over the last three decades, the, the most accurate way to characterize this is that wages have been increasing. Um, let's look at this. It's common to go back to 1973. And one of the things I want to do in this book is to argue that uh, comparisons between 1973 and, and the year 2020 uh, is too long of a window to make comparisons about. But it's common to go back to 1973. Wages have grown 23% since 1973. I wouldn't call that stagnant. I wouldn't call it spectacular, uh, uh, but, um, uh, uh, but I certainly wouldn't call it stagnant. I want to argue, though, that we should not start the comparison in 1973. This, this debate about wages among the policy community here in Washington often gets hung up on uh, what price index to use to adjust for inflation. I want to, I want to say uh, uh, that... Uh, what we really should be debating is the starting year. We should, be, we should spend less time debating the price index and more time debating the, the actual period that we're making the comparison over. So why do the default and start in 1973 or 1979 when you see that uh, there's this 30-year uh, period where wages have been going up? 
I argue to start in 1990. Why? When politicians and opinion leaders argue that wages have been stagnant for decades, people hear that as referring to their wages, the wages of people who are currently working. 1973 was 47 years ago. For the purpose of the policy debate, a more recent year, a year that is more relevant to people who are working, seems uh, uh, pretty straightforward. 1990 was a business cycle peak. The summer of 1990 is close to a structural break in this series that seems to have occurred around the mid-1990s. By what, I, by what I mean by that is that if you start in 1973, what you're doing is you're comparing, you're conflating a period of stagnation and decline with a period of growth. And that, to me, seems to be uh, uh, statistically inadvisable. I think instead, calculate growth over the period where wages are growing and, 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 and calculate stagnation over the period where wages are stagnating and, and don't conflate the two if you're trying to get a, a handle on, on what wages are doing. 1990 was roughly 30 years ago. You hear a lot of talk about several decades. Um, that seems like a reasonable length of time to go back. Uh, it's harder to correctly adjust for inflation the further back in time you go. One of the ways we can sidestep all these debates about which price index to use is just not to try to go back 50 years. If you go back 10 years, the price indices agree a lot more strongly than if you go back 20. If you go back 20, they agree a lot more strongly than if you go back 30. Um, so uh, uh, one way not to get mirrored down in a price index debate is to, is to focus on, um, on a shorter time period. Uh, uh, but my main point is that even if you do want to go back to the 70s, it's really not a, a complete picture to argue that wages have been stagnant. Uh, instead, I think you need to characterize the two different periods. So if you want to go back to the 70s, fine. What you should be saying is that wages stagnated throughout the 70s and throughout the 80s and into the 1990s. And then since the early to mid-90s, wages have been growing. That seems to me to be a much more uh, a kind of complete uh, characterization of the, of the behavior of wages. So 33% growth, 34% growth over uh, the last 30 years. Is that properly described as stagnant? It's slower growth in the top 1%. Uh, it is a significant increase in purchasing power, uh, and we shouldn't be content with it. So not stagnant, but not fast enough, and, and let's acknowledge that it's different than what's happening at the top. Um, but it is more wrong than right to describe this as stagnant. Uh, and uh, 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 instead, a one-third increase in purchasing power is significant. To just quickly make the point about the price indices, um, uh, this is a graph uh, uh, that adjusts uh, wages using both, using both series, and you see that the closer you get to the present, the more the, more the price indices agree. Um, another argument not to, not to go back so far. What do percentiles look like? Uh, median wages have grown by 24%. Uh, uh, wages for the 10th percentile have grown by uh, about a third. Wages for the 20th percentile have grown by about a third. And wages for the 30th percentile have grown uh, uh, roughly around there as well. So you can argue median wages have gone up by a quarter and kind of working class and low income wages have gone up by a third. Again, not stagnation. What about income? Uh, CBO computes three different measures of income. If you look at the uh, uh, post-tax and post-transfer income, you see that that's gone up by 44% for the median household. Market income has gone up by about 21%. If you look at the bottom 20%, you see that post-tax and transfer income has gone up by two-thirds, and market income has gone up by 44%. Again, not stagnant. 
Slower than the top 1%? Yes, but not stagnant. Um, income inequality is stagnant or declining as well. If you uh, look at CBO's income series and you look at uh, a Gini coefficient, which is a standard measure of inequality, uh, what you see is a significant increase in inequality in the 1980s and 1990s. And then since the Great Recession, when concern about inequality exploded, you actually see a 7% decline in this measure of inequality using the post-tax and transfer income. If you look at market income, you see an increase of about 2%. Um, this is another example of how the narrative about American workers has not kept up with the data. Wages were stagnant in the 1970s and 1980s. Hasn't been true for three decades. Inequality was growing rapidly in the 80s and 90s. For the past decade, it's been, going, it's been growing much less rapidly. Uh, this is a more straightforward measure of inequality, which is just the uh, ratio of, of weekly earnings uh, from the 90th percentile to the 10th percentile um, uh, and other measures uh, as well. And you see uh, that these also have um, uh, not shown any significant growth in inequality over that period. Um, do people care about inequality? Uh, I'm going to uh, do, cover this very briefly. Just make it, this chart here shows concern about inequality uh, graphed against actual inequality. So public perception about whether or not the rich are getting richer uh, versus the actual behavior of the Gini coefficient. There's not much of a relationship. In fact, the correlation coefficient is negative. If you look at this graph, this is a graph of concern about inequality and wage growth. And you see that wages are growing throughout the 1990s and concern about inequality is going down. So combine all those three facts together. Measured inequality is going up. Concern about inequality is going down. Wages are going up. This says to me that people care a lot more about how they're doing than they care about uh, the actual behavior of the rich-poor gap. Um, my third big point, life was better decades ago. This kind of goes with that saying. I like to show this graph. because It's a graph of air conditioning. This is uh, very important to me uh, personally. Uh, and you see uh, significant growth in, in the share of homes with, with air conditioning over this period. You know, perhaps more seriously, there have been significant advances in medical care. There have been significant advances in transportation safety. Uh, the idea that life was somehow better 30 or 40 years ago, even for the white working class, really borders on the absurd. And if you actually take that argument seriously, uh, it, it is impossible to imagine uh, that many, many people, if, any, if anybody, would actually go back in time and live 40 years ago, uh, uh, no matter what their current socioeconomic uh, situation is now. Um, middle class jobs. This is a chart that shows the hollowing out of the, uh, of the scale distribution. Uh, you see employment losses in the middle, uh, production workers uh, and clerical workers. Uh, these are the jobs with a lot of political salience during the, during the uh, Trump era. Uh, and you see increases in low-skilled, low-wage jobs along with increases in um, uh, uh, higher-skilled, high-wage jobs. This has been the source of considerable uh, uh, economic dislocation, uh, considerable uh, suffering in the lives of, 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 of many people, uh, a collision between expectations uh, and reality where expectations weren't fulfilled um, and is a, a very serious reality of American economic and social life. 
Um, to uh, put some numbers on it, uh, if you look at low, middle, and high wage occupations, you see that those constituted 31, 38, and 30 percent of total employment, so roughly spread uh, equally. Uh, and then if you look from 1970 to the present, you see that those middle scale occupations only constitute about 23 percent of total employment, so that's a significant decline. Um, but what happened to these workers? Uh, uh, a whole lot of the ended up moving into a higher income bracket. So you, you see in this chart, the red line shows that the share of households making between 35K and 100K has gone down considerably. Um, but they've been replaced with households that are earning more than 100K. They have not been replaced by households earning less than 35K. So this is, this is a, a story of disruption, but it's a story of disruption that has some positive uh, uh, elements to it as well. If you focus excessively on the uh, production jobs and the construction jobs and the clerical jobs that get all the political attention, uh, you do see that they're declining as a share of total employment. But if you look, you see that there's actually significant growth in other types of middle skill, middle wage jobs. Uh, these are healthcare support occupations, transportation uh, occupations, education and training occupations, personal care and services. Actually, there's a lot of growth in, in, the, in, in the chef's uh, uh, occupational category. Apparently, we, we want more chefs. Um, oh, look, here I have a list. Uh, so see, I wasn't lying. Chefs and head cooks and food service managers right there, right there at the bottom. Um, so the moral of the story is that creative destruction creates, but it also... Creative destruction destroys, but it also creates. And we hear a lot about the destruction, and we don't hear a lot about the creativity. Uh, but what's happening in those middle-wage uh, uh, occupations is what happens in a dynamic capitalist economy, where technology comes along and, and, and replaces some workers and replaces some tasks, uh, but that creates new opportunities. And workers need to take advantage of those opportunities, and public policy needs to assist workers in doing so. But uh, uh, bemoaning uh, economic change is, uh, and attempting to stop it is, is going to end up hurting the very workers that you're trying to help. Upward mobility. Rags to riches. Um, I won't explain this in any great detail, but uh, I did some calculations to see um, uh, what share of people who were born in the bottom, make it to the top, and it's about 7%. Um, what share of people who were born in the top make it to the bottom? Uh, I can't read that. It looks like it's 8%. Uh, so uh, this still happens in America. It's not common. Um, it's not the norm. It's not something to be expected if you're born into the bottom 20%, but you can go from the bottom to the very top in America. Uh, if you want to temper that uh, uh, and, and look at, at, at rags to comfort, um, you see considerably more upward mobility. People born in the bottom 20% and, 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 and in the next quintile um, uh, end up rising into the middle class uh, at a pretty good clip. Um, the measure of upward mobility I prefer is not that sort of relative ranking. Instead, I just want to ask are you doing better than your parents did? And what I've done in these calculations is look at, a whole, look at people who were in their 40s today and look at their household income and say, okay, if you're, 40, if you're 40-something years old today, are you earning more than your parents earned when your parents were the same age? 
and about three-quarters of people who are in their 40s today have a higher household income than their parents had when their parents were in their 40s. If you were born in the bottom 20%, 86% of those 40-year-olds have a higher household income than their parents had when their parents were in their 40s. This strikes me as considerable upward mobility. How much more? Median family income is up by 54% across those two generations. And if you're raised in the bottom 20%, it's up by 153%. So these are not trivial gains. Um, what about earnings? That was income. Income includes government transfers. What about earnings? I look at men, and I say, of the men who were in their 40s, how many of them earn more money in uh, the labor market than their father earned when their father was in his 40s? There, it's about 60%. If you were raised in the bottom, uh, it's about 80%. Uh, the reason it's 60% is because uh, folk, uh, people in their 40s today who were raised at the top, uh, a whole lot of them are actually earning less than their, than their dads did. Um, so the central tendency is pushed down. But there's still, uh, it is still the norm for men to out-earn their fathers. Um, and if you were raised in the uh, low-income uh, bracket or if you were raised in the working class, uh, three-quarters to 80% end up going on to out-earn their fathers. Uh, how much more? Raised in the bottom 20%, 64%, uh, raised in the working class up 30%, non-trivial gains. Now I'd like to invite Richard Reeves up to the stage. Uh, I want to thank Richard for, for doing this. AI is uh, committed to a competition of ideas. The ideas I'm tackling in this book are uh, difficult, and they're not straightforward, and there's plenty of room for reasonable disagreement. And so when I was thinking about how to put this book event together, I thought it would be better to have some of that reasonable disagreement on display here at the event rather than have me just stand up here and present my version of, of, of this situation. And I was thinking to myself, who's, who's the most thoughtful person I could find uh, to present a, a compelling counter-narrative? And he wasn't available, and so then I asked my friend Richard if he could come, <laughs> and uh, Richard was happy to do so. Let's welcome Richard. Thank you, Michael, for that kind introduction. It's a privilege to be here. Michael Strain has written a clear, compelling, empirically grounded, and actually irritatingly well-written book. Congratulations. I'm just going to very briefly outline some areas of agreement, then focus on some areas that I think could be of useful disagreement, and then make some general comments, which I hope will set up our broader debate. Uh, and I'm going to focus in a little bit on what the incentives are for pessimism. If it's true that we're overly pessimistic, then it's probably because it's working for us in some way. So let's start with the agreements. First of all, I agree with Michael there's an overstatement on both left and right of many of the broad trends that are affecting us. The middle class has been killed, says Joe Biden. American carnage, says President Trump, etc. I think that's true. There's a bipartisan overstatement of the problem. In fact, wage and income growth, to use Michael's words, have been solid, not spectacular, but not stagnant. These seem to me to be the right words to be using. We also think Michael is right to split the post-World War II economy into these broad three phases of very strong growth, followed by stagnation, followed by more growth, albeit not as strong. In fact, I think one of the problems with the debate is that the post-war years weren't the exception. When you have an economy that's growing by an average of 4% a year for some almost 25 years, then you're going to get a lot of upward mobility. You're going to get a lot of people getting better off. And it seems to me that that era of American history casts quite a shadow over all contemporary economic debates because at some level, particularly those who are old enough to remember those years, 
have sort of fixed that as the norm. And it was not the norm. It was the exception to the norm. We agree that trade is good uh, on net and in the long run. The China shock to U.S. manufacturing was real, but it was small and mostly geographically targeted. Certainly was magnified in certain places. Uh, Catherine Abraham and Melissa Carney estimate that the impact of the China shock has had less than a one percentage point impact on the employment to population ratio, and that it's mostly in the past. But there is a risk to prosperity from both protectionism and reduced immigration, and a risk to social harmony from the incitement of racial animosity. There is a risk from the reduction in dynamism, uh, which Michael didn't talk about, but it is in his book, business startup rates, people moving jobs, etc. I'd also add the sharp decline in geographical mobility of Americans as another reason to worry about dynamism. We agree that the value of work goes way beyond economic utility to include dignity, purpose, structure, etc. And I strongly agree with Michael's statement on page 135 that the government needs to do more to advance economic opportunity to those who need it most. And that brings me to four areas of disagreement. The first area of disagreement is, I don't think you need to be as anti-government as Michael appears to be in order to be anti-populist. Michael talks a lot about the need for limited government. He has a dim view of government bureaucrats, etc. Relatively uh, straightforward fare, I think, for someone who is as free market um, as Michael is. But it seems to me that you can think about this differently. In some ways, it takes two to tango. The government can provide insurance, security, human capital. The market can reward risk-taking, innovation, hard work. Rather than seeing the two as in some way opposed to each other, I prefer to think of the role of the market and government as being rather like the two arms you might put out as you balance your way across a fallen log. Too much of one and you'll fall, but too much of the other and you might fall too. I'm thinking a little bit about the way that government activity can sometimes lessen anxiety and the fear of the future, and then potentially even boost risk-taking. I'm reminded of the Conservative Chancellor in the UK, my home country, Kenneth Clark, who made a very strong free market argument for socialised healthcare on the grounds that the great thing is if you never have to worry about where your healthcare is coming from, you're more likely to start a business, risk a new job, risk a move, etc. I don't, I don't plan to get into that particular debate right here, simply to use it as an example of the fact that I don't think we should see them necessarily as counterposed. You can have a strong and active government and an open and dynamic economy. Indeed, I would argue that the false choice that is posed between the two on both left and right is in some ways one of the biggest dangers we face. I sometimes feel as if our debates and political philosophy and politics are stuck in the era where it is defined by your attitude towards government, pro or anti, big or small. The better question is, what are our goals? And what are the best institutions that can help us achieve them? What's the best blend between markets, states, etc., in achieving those goals, um, rather than having this pro-anti-government approach? I do think the government can play an important role, and that very often the government is wasteful. And I will give one example of, of wastefulness that was true until the um, tax reform passed by President Trump. Until the tax reform was passed, for every dollar that the U.S. federal government spent on trade adjustment assistance to help displaced workers, for every single dollar we spent on that, we spent $25 on tax subsidies to elite colleges. I would argue quite strongly that we should be spending that kind of money, but that we shouldn't be spending it on elite colleges. We should be spending on the workers who might be being affected by trade. And no wonder people might start to think that the system isn't working for them, when for every dollar I get to help me adjust to trade shocks, 
$25 are going to the elite colleges. And actually, just Michael's own charts, I think, show uh, from the difference between the uh, pre-tax and transfer inequality levels and post-tax and transfer inequality levels that the government has actually been doing quite a lot to blunt some of the market inequality we saw, and I'll say a bit more about that in a moment. Um, the other thing, the second thing, and I will be brief about these, is that um, we're not in great shape. Having agreed with some of these things, yes, it's not dead, but it's not in great shape. And I would say one thing in particular is that I th you can make an argument, and I would make an argument as someone who runs a project designed to help the middle class, that the middle class haven't been doing quite as well as perhaps Michael implies. This is household income growth. It's cumulative percentage change. It goes back to 1979, so all of those warnings. What this does, it shows you the top, what's been the cumulative income growth for the top 20%. The blue line below is the bottom 20%, and the red line is the middle three quintiles, the middle 60%, which is how we define the middle class. So what you're seeing is an 80% plus increase in household incomes in those. They're obviously not the same people, but of those income groups, which is about twice as much as we've seen in the middle of the distribution. And so that might speak a little bit to some of the sense people have of being left behind. But crucially, the data here is from the Congressional Budget Office and includes all taxes and transfers and includes the value of healthcare, government-provided healthcare. And actually, if you take out government-provided healthcare, which we won't get into now, the bottom 20% line drops significantly. The reason why the bottom 20% have actually almost kept up with the top 20% is a large part of the story of government, and it's a story, in particular, of government-provided health care and health subsidies. So I think the way I interpret this chart is that over this longer time period, the market has served the top 20% pretty well. The government has served the bottom 20% reasonably well. But the middle 60% have arguably not been quite as well served. The third thing, and I'm only going to say this very briefly, Michael says on page 87, I find it difficult to enthusiastically cheer for downward mobility as he talks about these quintile transitions. I'm not going to enthusiastically cheer for downward mobility, but I am going to say that if we want more people rising up into that top 20%, it's a matter of math that more people have to fall out of the top 20%. And I'm more troubled, actually, by the fact that that top 20% appears to be getting stickier over time, that there isn't more movement into it over time. It's lower than in other countries. It's, very, it's pretty sticky in certain places. But more importantly, we should just ask ourselves how it is that those of us who are in the top 20% are passing on those advantages to our kids. And I would say that some of the ways we do that, including through the higher education system, are blatantly unfair. And I'm not just talking about Operation Varsity Blues. I also think that the um, contribution towards downward mobility of inequality is somewhat greater than Michael suggests. This is a different chart to the one that Michael showed on absolute mobility. It's a famous one in social science from Raj Chetty and his colleagues, showing your chances of being better off than your parents, dropping from 90% if you were born in 1940 to 50% if you were born in the 80s. There's all kinds of issues with this chart, which we could get into, like it doesn't adjust for household size, etc. Um, but then what they do is they say, okay, so how much of that fall in your chances of being better off than your parents is a result of lower growth, because there has been a lot of lower growth, or the distribution of that growth. And what they show by running two counterfactuals is what it would be like if we'd held inequality at the same level, dropped growth, and what, we'd, what it would be like if we'd done the opposite. And they essentially show that more of the drop in downward absolute mobility is driven by a change in the distribution of growth rather than the amount of growth. So I think that's something we need to take seriously. There are distributional parts to this story as well as growth parts. And then I just want to make a couple of uh, broader points. 
Um, the first thing is that, as Michael suggested, to some extent here, you can, you can choose your story, then go select your data. Michael is commendably hands above the table about all his methodological decisions, and I do not propose that we get into a particularly long discussion about this, but I just wanted to make the point. This is cumulative percentage growth, not dollars, uh, of wages, and what I've done is I've uh, I used a different data set to Michael, so I've just put my data set up uh, on his and his data set to reassure you that they look pretty similar but then I'm just going to focus on my data set. So this is Michael's preferred time period, where you see some pretty healthy real wage growth. This is average real wealth growth using his preferred deflator. Great. Now, if I use the median rather than the average, not quite so great. So be careful when we say the typical American, etc. are we using average or median? I can pull it down a little bit. Um, so I've already brought it down to whatever, it's 17%. Now I want to get it a bit lower, so uh, I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll use a different inflation measure, the one Michael doesn't like, uh, instead of the one he does, PCE. We're not going to get into a discussion about that, I hope. There are, there are seven people who care about this, and three of them are in the room. So we're probably wedding into it. Uh, for what it's worth, you can argue one is better for wages, one is better for household income, blah, blah, blah. Okay, but anyway, so I've done that, so I brought it down. Uh, I want to get it a bit lower, because I've got an election to win. Uh, I'll tell you what I'll do, I'll go back further, I'll do what Michael doesn't like, I'll go back to late 70s, and then because the 70s and 80s are so bad, I get a lower cumulative growth, so now I'm at 3%, I'm pretty, I think I can use stagnant now, and I really want to be able to say stagnant, but I'd really like to say it's falling, so let's just do men, and now I've got a really nice drop, okay, so the point is not that any of these are right or wrong necessarily, you can make big arguments about which is the right one, which is the wrong one, but simply that when we're having these debates, it's very important to do what Michael did and be very hands above the table. Why that year, not this year? Why that deflator, not that deflator? Why are you only looking at men? You know, there are women in the labor force now, in case we hadn't noticed, etc. Um, so I just make that point because wage stagnation is such an important part of the story that we should be careful that we don't choose our narrative, then go find the facts to support it. Um, but be as uh, hands above the table as we possibly can. I'll make two brief comments uh, in closing. Number one, maybe it's three. Expectations really matter. If you can't read the whole book, read the exchange between Henry Olson and Michael Strain. That's a very interesting argument on the right, I think, about these issues right now, and that's a very, very interesting exchange. One of the things Henry Olson says is, well, it depends what people expect. Well, what do they expect? How much wage growth did they expect, and Why? because of their race, because of their color, because, because of their gender, because their fathers earned that much, etc. Um, quantitatively, I think Michael makes quite a strong case. But qualitatively, when you look at the, work doing the, the people doing the qualitative work, people seem to compare themselves to the previous generation, and particularly to the previous generation of people like them. So working-class white men tend to look at how they're doing compared to their working-class white fathers. That may be the wrong thing to do, but it does appear to be what people are doing. But the last thing I want to talk about is why. Why is it then? that we are drawn to these stories potentially of kind of pessimism. Well, first of all, politicians are going to do it, right? Because we're trying to elect, they're not going to get elected. So you have to say it's broke so I can fix it. Donald Trump, classic example. The American dream is dead. Now, according to his latest statements, he's brought it back to life, Lazarus style. But it's in his interest to say it's broken. That's why you need me to come and fix it. Media narratives are always drawn to extremes. And I mentioned the interesting fight on the right. I will note in passing that I think the pessimism danger is actually greater to the left than it is to the right. Because the government has done a whole heck of a lot more over the last 30 years. So if it's true that after more and more government investment, we're still in such bad shape, I think you could legitimately say, well, where did all that money go then? I think actually the government's done pretty well in the last 30 years, and that they should say that instead. But we should also, and this brings it a bit closer to home, we should be honest about the fact there's something of an intellectual glamour to both pessimism and polemicism. For the best of all worlds is a pessimistic polemic. John Stuart Mill, my hero, said in the middle of the 19th century, 
quote, it is thought essential of any man who knows anything of the world to think ill of it. A study of people looking at book reviewers, some of the book reviews were negative, some of them were positive, asked people to rate the intelligence of the reviewer. The reviewers who are negative were rated as much, much cleverer than the reviewers who are positive. There's something rather dull and stupid about optimism in too many of our minds. And I think the danger, particularly if you work in a policy think tank as we do, or selling books as we are, that the danger of overstating problems in order to justify our solutions is very great indeed, especially if those solutions are radical ones. In order to gain a larger share of public attention or get more people signing up to our idea, it's attractive. The incentives to do so are strong. And it is even more then, to Michael's credit, that he's managed to produce an argument, not all of which I agree with, but is provocative but not polemical, and that he's managed to be both reasonable, he's reasonable, he's modulated, and he's responsible, but without any loss of intellectual brilliance, rather the other way around. And that just makes it even more annoying altogether. I congratulate him on his work. Thank you, Michael. Well, thank you both. Uh, Michael, congratulations on a great book. Richard, thank you for being here and for great commentary about it. I- It seems to me that in some of the arguments that you are having with some of our friends on the right, um, there's a lot of traipsing carefully around the question of women. Yeah. Um, And even in laying out... Or traipsing less carefully in the case of Tucker Carlson. Yeah, that's right, but the... the, the, I think Mr. Carlson described the entry of women, of mothers into the workforce as as a disaster, Um, which is not really an undercurrent so much as a statement, but (laughs) I'm sorry, go ahead. (laughs) I, I wonder if, first of all, you think you do that yourself. There, there are places in the book where you mention that men have had it worse. Certainly, populism is driven by the fact that men have had it worse. But there's not a lot of discussion about what to make of that fact in some of the, in some of the debates we're having. Um, th- that men are lagging while women are rising, uh, is, is, is one the cause of the other? Uh, is the resulting politics best understood through the lens of the difference between them? What do you make of the economic effects of women entering the workforce? So I think uh, uh, that I didn't want to get bogged down into discussions of specific subgroups. I'm here to bog you down. (laughs) I'm happy to do it here in in the book. Um, I wanted to really try and focus on kind of the broad picture. Uh, Since you're asking... Male workers who are relatively more educated have been doing uh, have been doing fine. Um, if but if you are a, a man and you d- did not graduate high school, you are in bad shape, um, and the opportunities available to you in the labor market are are significantly limited. Now that's a minority of, of workers, of course, um, but uh, it is still imperative that we have better public policy to help advance economic opportunity to. Uh, those workers, and I think you're also right that uh, that that group of workers, uh, uh, particularly in some of the uh, American heartland and some of the Rust Belt states, have been driving a lot of our current political moment. But you're suggesting and, they're not wrong. Um, I'm I'm suggesting that they are not wrong to think that their opportunities are less than uh, they would hope for. Um, they're not wrong to think that their opportunities are less than they could reasonably have expected uh, when, they were, when they were growing up. Um, uh, uh, but 
Uh, I think that the uh, conservative, and where I take issue with some of our, our friends on the right, the conservative response to this reality, I think, has been deeply disappointing. You know, we had uh, in the 1980s and 90s a major debate about welfare reform in this country. And uh, conservatives got very accustomed to making the argument that low-income African-American single moms uh, should be expected to work, um, that the argument that that was somehow beyond their capability or, or beyond their ability given their circumstances in life was denying them agency, uh, that there was ample economic opportunity uh, if public policy uh, was crafted to help uh, help them create it. And the bill that eventually got passed into law had the phrase personal responsibility in the title that reformed welfare. Now, when we're talking about white men uh, in the heartland who don't have a college education, all of a sudden they're victims of a rigged game, they're victims of the elites, the, 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 the Wall Street uh, elites opened up China to free trade to enrich themselves, and that has immiserated them at their expense. Uh, uh, and uh, the conversation on the right acts as if they do not have responsibility, they do not have agency, and that uh, they aren't able to take advantage of, of the opportunities they have. I find that, that disconnect to be extremely troubling. Um, I also think uh, that the narrative on the right is analytically wrong. Um, we certainly need better policy for uh, those workers. Um, uh, but there is uh, ample economic opportunity for many of those workers uh, in the current economy, certainly more so than the public debate would suggest. Um, and, uh, you know, finally, I would, I would, I would say that um, I think they would respond better to a different message. And, and we, need, we need some of our leaders to give that a shot. Richard, on this point? Yeah, I'd like to weigh in on this, if you don't mind. Um, so it is the stagnant wage story is true for men at the median. Uh, I don't think anyone disagrees with that. Um, whereas there's been significant wage growth for, for women. So if you put them together, obviously you get a different story. Economically, the rise of, of women has been hugely beneficial in terms of macroeconomy, size of our labor force, no one, et cetera. No one denies that. I think what's at, what's at stake here is something about the fact that the capacity, and this is, right, so you'll get some people on the right, Aaron Cass, for example, um, who really just only focus on men. Um, uh, and there's good reason why that's wrong. But I think we need to take seriously the idea that the capacity of men to be a breadwinner in the traditional sense is significantly less than it was today. The economic requirement on women that they are with a man is significantly less than it was. But the expectations that men have of themselves, and to a large extent that women still appear to have of men, is to have that breadwinning capacity. And so I think we have to take quite seriously the fact that there could well be a lag between the ability of men in the current market to perform that traditional role and the apparently ongoing expectations, not only on the part of men, but also on the part of women, that they should do so. That puts quite a lot of men in a difficult position, and I think that actually might be the heart of many of the problems that we're seeing. Thanks for listening to the AEI Events Podcast. You can find new episodes each week on your favorite podcast apps. Please remember to subscribe and leave a review. We'll see you next week.